when we let what is real and true about us in Christ not be real and true about us in our life, we've been moved from the hope of the gospel to something else. And it raises a bunch of questions. Number one would be like, how do we enter into the faith in the first place? How do we enter into the hope of the gospel in the first place? And I'm going to argue that every single one of us is telling ourselves a story about the meaning of our lives. That we carefully as humans construct a story about who we are and a story about what is happening to us in our lives. And that every single one of us, in constructing this story, we live our lives with an audience in our head whose approval we seek and whose values we have embraced as, as somehow so significant that we need to live out those values. Those people might be living near us or they might be far away. They might be dead or they might be alive. But we live, whether they're with us or not, and whether they're even in conversation with or not, with an audience of those people inside of our head, living before their eyes. And I think every single one of us, as we construct our identity, we construct our identity by telling ourselves a story about the meaning of our life. And along comes Jesus, and he hands us a story that tells us the meaning of our life, and it is different from the story that life has taught us. It is different from the story that we've been telling ourselves. It's different from the story that our family might be telling or that our culture might be telling or that our friends might be telling. It's definitely different from the story the evil one has been whispering in our ears from the time we were born. And the story that God's telling us about our life is dominated by what Jesus has done for us and what was done to Jesus on our behalf. And so that what he has done and what happened to him defines for us who we now are and defines for us the possibilities of our life. He's the one who trades stories with us so that we get all his A's and he gets all of our F's. And he takes all of our lack of obedience and he gives us all his momentum. That he takes all of our enmity with God and he gives us all of his momentum and friendship and favor and covenantal goodness. And it's such a crazy trade that Paul in Ephesians 1.3 says that we have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. Every spiritual blessing. That means if it's every spiritual blessing that there's no one who could be more blessed than that. So everything that you could possibly need or want is already provided, and you didn't do it. Every single thing you need to live out the destiny and the plan that God has for you has already been provided. But to lay hold of it, you have to let go of the story about your life that you've been telling. And you have to embrace the story that God is telling us through the gospel about our life. We have to trade an identity. We have to trade scripts. And so Paul knows that like you can start well. You can punch in and you can trade scripts. And you can say, this is the script? Okay. And, you can, and, the, and, the, and the director can say, action. And then you start to embrace this thing. But something happens in your life where either you screw up or something painful happens or disappointment hits or trouble or hardship. Something goes on that causes you to hear the director say, cut, and you break character and you go back to the old script. That's being shifted, that's being moved from the hope of the gospel. And it happens when we re-embrace a script that we think is true. We believe it fully. It's, it's an amazing thing. So how do we enter into this faith in the first place? By trading stories, by trading scripts with Jesus. 
where the story of my life is no longer determined by what I've done, but by what he's done, and where the story of my life is no longer defined by what has happened to me, but by instead what has happened to him. And if at any time what happens in my life defines me more than what happened to his life for me, then I'm allowing what matters less to matter more than what matters most. Do I need to say that again? If at any time what happens in my life begins to define me more than what happened in his life for me, then I'm allowing what matters less to matter more than what matters most. And I think this raises the question, well, who is the real me then? Because I think most of us tend to think that our story about our life is more true than his gospel. I think most of us tend to view the gospel as some sort of add-on that we incorporate into the story we're telling about our life in little bits and pieces in a way that if we just add this piece here and add this piece there to the story we're telling, then that will add an increased level of fulfillment in Jesus and that'll give us a more full life. We're just missing a few things and we just need a little upgrade here and a little upgrade there. We'll add this part and there we go. And in that, we think this wildly positive affection and estimation and this incredibly over-the-top opportunity that we can have perfect fellowship with the Father, even though we're not perfect. I haven't behaved perfectly, and yet I get perfect access to the Father? That seems too good to be true. What do you mean holy and blameless in His sight as we stand before Him without a single fault? What do you mean I can do what He called me to do? What do you mean nothing that's wrong with me is going to stop me from being able to accomplish what he called me to because he's with me and he lives in me and lives through me? What are you talking about? It's like every time in the Old, Test in the Old Testament when God calls a prophet or a leader, they argue with God on the basis of their weaknesses. And not one time does he tell them that they're amazing. That's the modern crap that we do. Not one time does God say, oh, no, no, you're incredible, you're gifted, you're, you have integrity, you're awesome. You're such a capable person. Not one time does he try to boost their self-esteem. Every time, instead of boosting their self-esteem, again, that's what, the modern, that's what modern Christians do. What does he do? He boosts their faith in him. He wants to trade their story for his story. I am with you. It's not about you. It's about me living through you. He wants them to trade the story they're telling for the story he's telling. He doesn't want them to just think a little more positively about themselves. I am with you, so be bold and courageous. So the most important thing is not the story that's true about my life according to what's happened to me and what I've done and how they've treated me and all this stuff that we think defines our life story. Think about Joseph. If he was defined by the story of his life, he would have felt like abandoned by God, betrayed by all of his friends, and he would have missed the moment. He would have missed the moment in prison where he had the opportunity to pray and prophesy over somebody. He would have missed the moment. Instead, he rises like cream to the top every time. You could say his story of this isn't fair. Have you ever read the Bible and said about the saints, that ain't fair. How's come Jeremiah gets thrown in a well? How's come Ezekiel's wife dies? How's come Moses has to wander in the wilderness for sins that aren't his fault? It's not right. Now, if they were thinking like that, that's loser thinking. 
That's selfish thinking. That's the story we tell ourselves about our life instead of the story God is telling. Trading scripts. Who is the real me? We tend to think of this shallow identity that we've made for ourselves. We think of this story as real and true. And this thing that God says is, is some kind of a loving fiction. Like a loving fiction in the sense that we like temporarily put on a jacket that feels really odd and foreign and like poorly fitted. But the truth is that the identity that we formed for ourselves is actually the fiction. Our brains are wired so backwards that what the Bible calls strongholds, which is to say deeply embedded lies that need to be rooted out by gospel truth, transforming and renewing our minds, those things that are strongholds, those things feel more true to us than the truths that make us free, naturally. And so when life happens and it feels like the director called cut and we go back to the story we've been telling ourselves. We feel like we've stopped with the fake thing and now we're being real. And we know this, right, that the, the Greek word that is translated hypocrite really is referring to a play actor, right? So Jesus constantly called the Pharisees, the religious people, actors, stage theater production actors who present one thing as real but in the heart, in the motive level, it's something totally different. And I think many of us feel like, oh, if I, if, I, if I put that thing on, that's me being fake. One of the favorite topics for me with, with, with regard to acting is just taking a few method actors and looking carefully at their careers and their strategies. And uh, used to be the actor Daniel Day-Lewis kind of intrigued me. It seemed like he threw himself so fully into the roles that he didn't, when the director said cut, he didn't cut. He just, he just kept going. So the other actors, when he did the, the Lincoln movie, said, I never met Daniel until all production was over and we were out for drinks and that was the first time that I ever met Daniel Day-Lewis. So for all those months that we were filming, I was relating to Abe Lincoln but the most dramatic example of method acting, method acting is like different from regular acting. Regular acting, you are acting like the character. Method acting is your attempt to become the character, to inhabit the character, to fully immerse yourself in the character in such a way that no matter if they yell cut or not, you go home and take a shower and get up the next day and shave as the character. And the reason why Daniel Day-Lewis was, you know, one of my heroes on that is because he took a couple of years off to go learn how to be a cobbler in Italy, a shoemaker, where he would tan the leather himself by hand and cut the pieces himself and form and shape everything about the shoes himself. For like two years, he worked as a cobbler. 
In other words, he took this thing of method acting so far, he no longer was just acting for movies. He said, what other lives can I live in my one lifetime? I'm not content to just live as me. There's so many possibilities. I could be so many different people. And you only get to really experience life if you become someone else. But the most staggering example of this that I've encountered yet is Jim Carrey. When for the movie Man on the Moon, he'd studied every last bit of comedian Andy Kaufman, every last bit of video, every last bit of testimony. He'd done all the careful research to get inside the character Andy Kaufman, and he was standing there by the ocean, and he talks about a transformation where in a moment he was Jim Carrey, but then he stepped over and he became Andy Kaufman. Fully became Andy Kaufman, so much so that he was in character as Andy Kaufman and it was causing lots of problems because Andy Kaufman was kind of a shock comedian. He would offend. He would, he would get the audience to hate him, to get a reaction. And he would pick fights and pick battles. And so as Andy Kaufman, Jim was so in character that Andy Kaufman's parents and sister came on set and spent time in his trailer talking, not to Jim, talking to Andy. And they came out with tears on their face because they had missed Andy so much and it was so wonderful to see their son again. That's not acting. And the director was so frustrated with Andy's exploits, with Andy's hijinks, because he was so, Jim was so lost, there was no Jim left. And the director was dealing with Andy Kaufman, this person without fear of rejection, this person without inhibitions, this person without limits, this person who loved to offend and play on social expectations. Famously staged a very sexist wrestling match with a female professional wrestler who beat the snot out of him and physically hurt, damaged him permanently. And that was the sort of stuff that Andy Kaufman was doing through Jim Still. And the director one time called Jim on the phone and said, this isn't working. You're too much of a frustration to everyone else, the other actors and the crew. I don't know if I can handle Andy. And there was a long silence, and then Andy said, well, if you'd like, I could go away, and Jim could pretend to be me. Would you like that? And the director thought for a long time, and he said, no, no, I wouldn't, because he knew they were getting gold. They were getting the real Andy Kaufman. And so, okay, to get the real Andy, we're going to have to take all the mess that comes along with it. And so they finished it out. And there's, there's film, sort of B-roll, of Jim Carrey sitting around as Andy Kaufman talking bad about Jim Carrey. Andy talking about Jim Carrey with all his hang-ups, all his insecurities, all his fear, all his neurotic guilt over the person he wished he could have been, over the person he should be, and over not being enough, and all the fear of the future, and the fear of lack that drives him, and all the insecure, just what a jerk, what a mess that Jim Carrey is. So much ego. And as it got time for the end 
of filming, Jim Carrey tells the story of not wanting to go back to being Jim again. Because he knows now what it feels like to not be Jim. He knows what it feels like to live as someone else inside this body. And he thought, ah, do I have to go back to being Jim? It's like the experience taught him that this person that he had known as Jim Carrey was actually someone he didn't have to go back to being if he didn't want to. That this thing was a construct that he had invented. And he sat there, and this is what he said. He said, I thought about having to go back to being Jim, and then this thought came to me. What if instead of going back to being Jim, what if I would just let Jesus of Nazareth live through me instead? That makes it so clear to me that the person we think of as the real us is a construct. And that the gospel is a script and our faith is method acting. It's not trying to pretend that this could be true. We're acting as though it's like, like as though it's true. That's acting. But faith is method acting because method act is, acting is becoming that thing. It's so committing that you believe that thing fully. Of course, there's very few of us, I think, that, that we would say we've seen a lot of examples of people that the day they meet Jesus, they switch scripts and a new self comes out the other side. For most of us, it's we're adopting the script a little bit more slowly over time. Even those of us who have the 180 would still say the 180 is there, but there's still more. And so when the director yells, cut, the call, Paul's saying, don't, 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 don't shift from the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel comes from a certain story about your life. And the way you shift from it is to tell a different story than the one God's telling about your life. Because the story that's true about your life brings peace. The story that's true about your life creates a motivation of love. The story that's true about your life calms you down and causes you to say, there are no big problems. Even death is not a big problem. The story that's true about your life creates such a hope that you will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living and in the next life face-to-face -face beauty and glory. And in all this small stuff along the way, your father is working it out. And you can trust him. So by saying don't shift from the hope of the gospel, I, I, I think one way to look at this is don't tell yourself another story. Don't swap out the gospel for a downgrade. And in practical daily life, what that means is our agreements matter a lot. They say that a thought has power, but that if you add externalized language to it, it amplifies that power. So that if I fear I might fail, that's one thing. But if I then declare I will fail, that's adding power 
the power of your authority in Christ is now being misused. And those things really are detrimental. This last week I was realizing that there are some agreements that I've made with demonic lies that I needed to break my agreement and start agreeing with God on them. It's not always clear. This is where it really helps to have friends to say, why would you say that? I sat down next to Rusty the other day and he said, what are you doing? He was, in four seconds, he gave me a counseling session. Boy, what's wrong with you? Stop listening to the devil. You keep listening to the devil, he gonna keep talking. And then he just quoted like three scriptures like And instantly I felt hope rise. (laughs) It's the rusty counseling. His counseling isn't like my counseling. I take notes and you talk for 40 minutes and, and then we pray through things. Rusty says, interrupt and yell at you a little. And then <laughs> it's just as effective. What are you doing, boy? Stop listening to the evil one. He's going to keep talking to you if you keep listening to him. Agreements matter. When the gospel is proclaimed, when the gospel is preached, announced, an offer is being made. And if we give it our agreement, Scripture says it then takes on the power of God to transform our life. But if we don't give it our agreement, it doesn't. That's pretty big. That's a big deal. That the gospel is preached. This is truth. Like Hebrews 4 says, that the reason it was powerful and effective in certain people's life and not at all powerful in other people's life is because they didn't exercise faith in that word. Agreement. And temptations are like little false gospels being preached to us. And when temptations really lay hold of our heart, it's because they've gotten our agreement. And all over the New Testament, we see Paul warning Christians that there are other ideas that are vying for our attention, vying for our agreement. And if we give them our attention, and worse, our agreement, they will dilute the gospel and they will block the gospel's power to transform our lives. This is about half of what I have in my notes. This is page two out of four. So I'm just gonna stop because I feel like I've, I've, this is a full, I've shared a full thought and I'd rather not preach two separate sermons in one sermon. So just summarizing and bringing home. Holy and blameless in his sight as you stand before him without a single fault. Holy and blameless in his sight as you stand before him without a single fault. That's who you are. That's what he accomplished. If we give it our agreement, its power will be robust in our life. If we switch scripts, now, I don't, know what, what, I don't know what strongholds are in your heart. I don't know what strongholds are in your mind. I don't know what parts of your life story are, are disagreeing with God's truth about your life. I don't know, but the Holy Spirit sure knows. And so let's just pray and let's invite, okay? Holy Spirit, we, we invite you to do what you said you would do. Jesus, you said... There were things we were not ready to hear, but that later the Holy Spirit would guide us into all truth. 
And so you delight, you delight, Holy Spirit, to take the truth of Jesus and shine that flashlight on our heart. And God, we ask that today and we ask that tomorrow and we ask that this whole week, you would be giving us upgrades into the parts of the story we're telling about our life are out of alignment with the story you're telling in your gospel. God, we invite you. We invite you and we, and, we, and we choose to give our agreement out loud with our words to what you've been saying about us, not with what the enemy says about us. So I ask God that you would sensitize us that when, when we utter speech that doesn't, that doesn't line up with your gospel, I ask for Holy Spirit insight in that moment to say that was wrong. I need to retract it, I need to reverse it, and I need to confess your truth, God. We ask these things for Jesus' sake. 